Good morning. Please turn with me to our scripture reading, which is 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus or Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth uh, in the middle of the first century. And uh, he wrote this letter to a church that he had planted uh, almost five years before. Uh, A church that he had left in good hands, had left in peace, but a church that was unraveling. What seems to have distressed Paul the most was their disunity. Distressed him so much that he spent the entire first four chapters of this letter focusing on their disunity. I want to open up by just asking you all a question, and I'd love to hear your answer. Uh, Based on your own experience in life, what tends to divide people? I don't, I'm not just looking for Bible answers and Sunday school answers. It could be anything, anything from your experience. What typically divides people? What do you think? Daniel in the back. Sports divides people. Thanks for starting easy, yeah. Politics divides people. Oh, we're starting with the big, the big ammunition. Yeah, Annie. Abortion, so a specific issue, yes. And that just last week. Yeah. What else? Yeah, this week I meant. Okay, there we go. Okay, so controversial issues, and and abortion is just one of many. What else? What divides people? Uh, Some I haven't seen yet. Yeah. Professional jealousy. Like you can you can have your PhD in jealousy, or do you mean something else? Okay. So jealousy, jealousy based in uh, like competition within your field, within your, your vocation or your, your job, your, your industry, or would that be, yeah, je- je- just jealousy amongst competing people in the same line of work. Yeah. Beliefs, you, uh, beliefs divide people. Yeah. Yeah. History. Our history divides us, meaning what's happened in the past. We remember what's, where we come from, culture. Okay, good. Yeah, Caitlin. Class and status divide us. Yes, somebody who I haven't, yeah, Patrick. Religion divides us. Yeah, somebody who hasn't, haven't, yeah. Denomination, even within the same religion. 
Denominations divide us. Uh, yeah. Pride divides us. JT. Race divides us. Wow. I think there's the most hands I've seen in a long time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there was one more? Yeah. Societal values, that's important, yeah, because we, depending on uh, what you believe or where you're from or what you're about, you value different things. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, not all conflict is bad, uh, but conflict raises awareness that there may be competing values. Yeah, yeah. That's really good. One more. Perspective divides you. Do you think that's similar than what somebody said in the back, history divides us or... You don't necessarily mean perspective on the past, maybe just. Okay. Mm-hmm. How you view events that happen. Yeah, insightful. Thank you. Um, unity in, you know, this humidity, hu- humidity. What is humidity? It's when unity is achieved through humidity. Humidity. <laughs> Unity uh, in the human experience seems impossible to achieve. You know, you have it for a minute and it's gone. You have it for a year and it's gone. Um, and and it seems, it, well, it doesn't seem, it simply lasts briefly when, when you do see unity in the world. The Bible, the Christian message actually offers a unique expression of, of unity that you really don't find anywhere else because this is unity that is not achieved from within, from within a society, from within a group of people. The Christian concept of unity is an alien unity. It is unity that is achieved from the outside that is brought in. And that's what I want to talk about today. Actually, uh, the German theologian uh, who was imprisoned and executed by the Nazis uh, during the Second World War, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a book, a little book called Life Together. I'll probably be quoting it a lot uh, during the entire series on First Corinthians. But he wrote that Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Very similar to what Ed shared with us earlier during the confession. Not an ideal which we as human beings must realize, but a reality God creates in Christ in which we may participate. And so, the cross is the source of the church's unity. The cross is the source of Christian unity. And nothing else. And this morning, as we look at what Paul began to say to the Corinthians in this classic, difficult letter, we're going to talk about what divides us. We're going to talk about what unites us. But we're also going to talk about what distracts us from staying united. What divides us, what unites us, and then what distracts us. So the Corinthian church was splintering. And you see this in verse 11. 
Paul says, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Although the Corinthians were awaiting Paul's response on several ethical questions they had raised to him in a previous letter, Paul's going to answer those ethical questions, but not until chapter 7. So we've got a few months to go before we get to the big ethical issues. Uh, Despite the questions that the church in Corinth had sent to Paul while he was in Ephesus, Paul's primary concern in this letter was to address their conflict with each other, and we'll find out later, their conflict with him. We know very little, almost nothing about this woman, Chloe. Uh, she apparently was a wealthy, uh, a well-to-do Ephesian woman. Uh, she lived in Asia. She probably had servants and employees. Those servants and employees probably traveled on business for her back and forth from Asia to Corinth. If Chloe had servants and employees who were Christians and part of the church in Ephesus where Paul is writing from, they probably, on, in, in doing business in Corinth for Chloe, they probably visited the church in Corinth. Which means when they came back to Ephesus, they probably told Paul, who is at the church in Ephesus, what was actually going on in Corinth. Paul hears about it from Christians who are employed by Chloe. That's the best explanation. Paul finds out, and so, in a sense, this letter written from Ephesus um, to the Corinthians, this letter is Paul's attempt to establish some order there, some order uh, before he has opportunity to visit them himself. Now, what was the nature of their quarreling? We don't know. We really don't know. But Paul does summarize what he's been hearing from Chloe's people. And he quotes in verse 12 what he's been hearing. Expressions, slogans, ideas like, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or Cephas is Peter, by the way, or I follow Christ. What's going on there? Well, what we know about Apollos from the book of Acts is that he was a Jewish convert to Christianity from uh, the Egyptian city of Alexandria. And what we know is that Apollos was a very gifted orator. Uh, Apollos was well-versed in the Old Testament, and he was a powerful, convincing, public debater. Uh, that's what we know about Apollos. It's possible that his speaking abilities, his public persona, so impressed some of the Corinthians that they joined, a, they created a little Apollos fan club. Apollos visited Corinth after Paul had planted the church and left. Of course, Paul himself fathered this church, and perhaps some were trying to remain faithful, loyal to Paul as the father of their church and got caught up in trying to protect Paul's personality and and Paul's reputation as others began to exalt other leaders. Cephas, uh, Peter, nothing's known historically whether or not Peter ever visited Corinth. We know in the very least that Peter was the most influential of the 12 original apostles. It's very possible that people really just found themselves relating to and aligning themselves with with Peter's perspective and Peter's reputation. And then it says, I follow Christ. What in the world is that all about? It's very possible that some people were just saying, aren't we all Christians? 
I follow Jesus. Uh, but nonetheless, we're part of the backbiting and the divisiveness themselves, as if Christ had his own camp amongst all these other people who were his apostles. Why were these divisions characterized by allegiances to certain leaders? Because what we know from the New Testament is that these individuals didn't have conflicts with one another. There's nothing that says Apollos and Paul were at odds with each other. There was one bit of tension at one point years before between Peter and Paul, but in Peter's own words, that was a theological issue that, from Peter's perspective, was resolved. So these aren't leaders who are at odds with one. These are not leaders who are professionally jealous of one another and competitive of one another. Rather, it seems that the Corinthians themselves were fragmenting into personality cults. Now, remember, and it may be helpful if you missed last week, you can go online to our website and listen to the recording because it, it may help you get a, a, a frame of reference for the history of Corinth itself, where the Corinthians were as, as a group of people culturally coming from. But remember, what we know about Corinth is that it was fueled by the desire for upward social mobility. People were trying to make a name for themselves in Corinth. That's what the whole city was about. It was, it was the city of Corinth when Paul showed up there originally. The city as it stood at that time was only 100 years old. Everybody was related to or fathered and mothered by someone who was an immigrant someone who was formerly a slave or a military person, people who were trying to move up in society. And this, of course, fueled a competitive individualism. And this mentality, as one scholar says, spilled over into the relationships within the church itself. Perhaps the Corinthians were aligning themselves with whoever had baptized them. That would explain why Paul seems so relieved that he had barely baptized any of them. He's like, if you're going to act this way, I'm glad I only baptized a few of you. Because I don't want you putting my name on your little, your little cat fight over there. Paul sees all of this as a terrible contrast to the church's founding principle. Now, the church's founding principle was what he said he had come to preach the gospel itself, the good news of life and forgiveness and reconciliation through the blood and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That was the founding principle of the church. And Paul, in, thir in verse 13, goes on to say, he asks them these scathing rhetorical questions that they should know the answer to. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? What he's saying is, are you dividing out Christ? Are you partitioning out Christ as though he's just one of the rest of us? To be followed like some human teacher and leader, like a prophet or a philosopher? Has, as if any of us could have died for you? As if you could have been baptized in anybody else's name? Not, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but I baptize you in the name of Apollos. I baptize you in the name of Paul. Is that what you're doing? Paul's basically making an absurd statement to point out to them how absurd they're acting. And his string of quotations reveals something to us. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. What's consistent in each of these phrases is the pronoun I.
What divided the Corinthians was what often divides us, ego. Each championing the leader whose style or whose story most resonated with them and casting judgment on people who champion someone else. It's egotism. It's, it's, that, it's that, I'm not speaking in technical terms here, but egotism, all right? The fact that you are always looking out for you. Egotism kills unity. It has all sorts of cloaks. And we call it race and history and perspective and rivalry. But we're all looking out for ourselves. And when that mentality infiltrates the church, it segregates us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer went on to write, Without Christ, we should not know God. We could not call upon him nor come to him. But without Christ, we also would not know our brother, nor could we come to him. The way is blocked by our own ego. With a diversity of personalities among us as a church, diversity of personalities and experiences and personal preferences and affinities and stories among us, we will inevitably tear apart. Relational entropy. Now, what unites us, what unites us is, wait for it, agreement. What unites us is agreement. You may be saying, well, yeah, obviously, Oh, hold on a second. Wait a minute. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. You got to go back a couple of verses. This is, his, this is the point of what he's trying to say to them first. He gets through the introductions. How you doing? You know, I'm, I'm, remember me, Paul. Um, I thank God for all of you now. Here, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, when Paul tells them to be united, the word there, it means to be mended. It means to be restored, to be repaired. It's used in the Gospels when we read that the disciples were by the Sea of Galilee mending their fishing nets. It's the same word. It means to bring something back together that's been undone. And unity, see, unity doesn't come naturally. Unity must be achieved. And Paul here saying unity must be achieved by, I quote him, agreeing. They must agree with one another. Different types of people can only unify when there's something on which we can agree. So we naturally gravitate towards like minds. We just naturally gravitate towards people we can relate to, who have had similar experiences, who, who have similar stories, who like similar foods or sports teams, who have struggled or suffered in very similar ways, who have the same enemies. We naturally gravitate in such ways. We did it on the playground when we were little. Uh, we did it in the college dorm when we showed up in a new environment and we're trying to find a group to belong to. We do it at the annual Christmas party at work. You just kind of standing around, you will gravitate towards people that you feel most comfortable with if they're even there. And we do it in churches just as much. 
While this isn't at all bad, uh, what we naturally do is we align ourselves with people who can help protect our interests. We align ourselves with people who can help us preserve our way of life. But when our interests and when our ways of life begin to conflict with one another, we begin to splinter. We're all different people in this room. Even though we're living in the same culture and the same society, we're different people. We've got single people here. We've got families here. We have white-collar people here. We have blue-collar people here. Uh, We have college students here. We have retired people here. We have people from different ethnicities and races in this church. We have people who have, if you're a Christian, worshipped in very different types of churches, in different denominations with different theological perspectives. We vote for and identify with different political parties. We have this Ravens-Steelers thing going on. We're different. We're very different. We have introverts. We have extroverts and everything in between. And you see, uniformity, uniformity is what's attempted when one interest group tries to dominate. But unity, unity is when all groups find something on which they can agree. Dietrich Bonhoeffer also wrote that, and this is important for what we're looking at today, We are bound together by faith, not by experience. And that very short sentence is extremely important. And I'm encouraging you today to seek unity by faith in Jesus Christ with those you would not naturally commune with or associate with. They're right here in this room. You know they are. Seek by faith in Jesus Christ unity with people you normally would not associate yourself with. We've talked about what disunifies us and what unifies us, but here, once we're unified, the unity that Christ has accomplished for us, what distracts us from living in that unity, what distracts us from agreeing in faith is novelty. Let me explain what I mean. In verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Words of eloquent wisdom. Now, the word for wisdom there is Sophia. And in the book, in the letter to the Corinthians, almost always when Paul uses the word Sophia eloquent wisdom, he is referring to the ancient philosophical tradition of Greek rhetoric. Traveling ancient philosophers would go from place to place, from town to town, and share publicly in the marketplace, would share publicly some new, novel, lofty idea, a different teaching, And the philosophers that were the most eloquent, whose words were the most powerful and the most polished, would, in a sense, gather the most 
followers. And so this concept of Sophia, eloquent wisdom, uh, Paul believed is what the, what the Corinthians were accustomed to. The, the Corinthians were accustomed to aligning themselves with who was new, who was interesting, and who was novel. It's kind of like how we all follow and like different people, celebrities, politicians, preachers, authors on Facebook and social media. We like and follow and post and share all over the place. And then we judge one another for who we follow and for what we post and for the sermons or the books or the comments by the people we follow that we share. And we go to one another. Can you believe they they like that person? I can't believe they like that person. Did you hear about, like, isn't there some scandal with that guy? She likes that book? Oh, have you read that book? The theology is mm, kind, of, kind of weak. Gee. We do, it all the, we do the same thing that the Corinthians were doing. We have personality cults. It just, it just looks a little different. We, if, 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 if the Corinthians were living now and had mobile devices and the Internet, this is what they'd be doing. Oh, I'm all about Apollos, man. Hashtag wisdom from Alexandria. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Hold on. I follow Paul. Hashtag Pharisees for Jesus. What, what? No, 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 no. No, Peter. It's all about Peter. I follow Peter. Hashtag gonna be the first pope. You cannot beat the first pope. We do the same thing. And it sounds absurd because it is absurd. And that's what Paul's trying to say. You're all being absurd. As if I died for you. As if being baptized by me means somehow you're a Paulite. Each of us chooses experience over faith. That's why what Bonhoeffer said is so important. Because what we do is we choose our experience over faith. We choose fallen leaders over God's only son. And what Paul is saying is that, that this empties the cross of its power. What he means by that is, is the cross becomes void. It nullifies the cross. Now, you could say, how could the cross ever be emptied of its power? Of course, Paul's not being literal, but this is what he is trying to do. Paul's saying, Paul's saying that, that the cross becomes obscure. The cross becomes irrelevant. The cross becomes embarrassing. As we become distracted by what's novel, what's impressive, what seems productive, and what accommodates us as individuals. And we will remain Distracted. You will remain distracted, and we as a body will remain distracted until we look to the one who unites us. We have to look to Jesus who unites us. You know, Jesus, the, the, the day before he was crucified, he said, And I when, I, am, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's talking about when he was going to die. It's twisted and dysfunctional for us to align and to subsequently segregate around personalities. It is right 
And it is good and it's healing to congregate around one man. We are wired. We are designed to be attracted to one person. There's, there is a scenario in which it is good to all gravitate towards one person. But when we gather around Jesus, we gather around a cross. And we gaze up at this man who was lifted up, hanging there for us, killing the guilt that separated us from God, killing the hostility that divided us. Read Ephesians chapter 2. Killing the shame that divides us from one another. See, the power of the cross that Paul is talking about, the cross's power lies in its message that we are all sinners and that we all have the same Savior. That's the power of the cross. However we're different, however we argue, however we've hurt one another, either yesterday or historically, we're all sinners. And there's one guy hanging there for all of us. That's the power of the cross. I would never hang out with certain people. Left to my own devices, I would never hang out with certain types of people who I don't relate to. Same with you, I know it. And they're in this room. I know, look, come on. There are people in this room that you and I would never hang out with if we were left to our own devices. But when you look at the cross and you see that man who died for them just as much as he died for you, You're humbled and you say, well, I can agree on that. I can agree on that. And that's where we start from. That's always where we start from. There are going to be people in your families at holiday gatherings, people where you work, people where you study, people in the world, people on social media. You're never going to get along with you. You are never going to agree with you. You don't want to go near them. And nobody's forcing you to. But in the church, in Christ, a unity has been established. He broke down the dividing wall, not only between Jew and Gentile, but but between everybody and everybody on the cross. And he killed the hostility between us because he killed the hostility between us and him. And that's where we begin. That's how we agree. That's the one thing. That's the only one thing that we truly have in common. Everything else has to be built up from there. We don't start as Presbyterians or Baptists or musicians or engineers or rich or poor or black or white or Asian. We don't start as blue collar or white collar. We start at the cross where Jesus died for all of us. And we build unity from there. And our leaders, our leaders, myself included, must demonstrate this in how we lead and how we serve. Never baptizing people into our own personality. Never baptizing people into our own techniques or our own styles or our own plans for this ministry. But communicating in all we do, leaders, communicating in all we do, the theme of John the Baptist. I am not the Christ. He must increase I must decrease. The cross is the source 
of our unity and the power for it. Not a leader, not somebody on YouTube, not some cause, not some denomination, not some political party, not some personal or group experience. The cross is the source of our unity and the power for it. So seek unity by faith in Jesus Christ with the people you would not naturally commune with. And we'll stop there and pick up Paul's letter again next week. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus Christ who would not naturally commune as a holy king with wicked, guilty servants who had rebelled against him and tried to take over his property. Father, we praise you for our Lord Jesus, who, although he had no cause or reason to associate himself with us, did and lived among us and died in our place. And may our knowledge, our faith, our sight of Jesus on his cross unite us. And Father, may we seek to look at one another, despite our differences, to look at one another through the gaze of the cross of Jesus Christ and see that we are all new. Uh, although we were sinners, we have been saved by his grace. Uh, Lord, unite this church. Uh, and, and Lord, I know that we have other affiliations outside of Deep Run Church uh, with other believers. Unite us by the cross and the grace of Jesus in his name. Amen.